giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Ben Ferber, a developer in our London studio. Ben, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we recently ran an event with our London studio about fulfillment. And uh, what we're going to do today is a little bit of a special episode where we have the recording of that event, and we're going to share it with everybody. Yeah, and I'm really excited for others to to hear it. It's something that's especially close to my heart, and it's no exaggeration to say I'm here working for ThoughtBot now because of how passionately I know you care about this topic and have talked about this topic on this podcast. Yeah, that's great to hear. We used to use the word happy, like it's important to be happy in our work. And over the years, we realized that happy can sort of mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. It can be a superficial kind of word. It's possible to be happy in your work and to not be truly fulfilled. So what does fulfillment mean to you? I guess I'm not fulfilled unless I know I'm providing real world value from my time and my professional time not fulfilled if I'm miscommunicating with my colleagues lots and therefore frustrated. Yeah. And while this event is about being a fulfilled developer specifically, those things that you just said apply to everybody, not just developers, not just designers, but everyone working anywhere deserves to be fulfilled in their work. So while this conversation is titled Fulfilled Developer, I think it's going to be applicable to everyone. So Ben, thanks for helping to put this event together. And here we go. Hello, everyone. Nice, easy question for you all first. Please raise your hand if throughout your entire professional life, you've been completely fulfilled for every moment of it. (laughs) Don't be that person. Well, good news for the rest of you. Um, That's what we're talking about. So you're at the right event. But also hopefully for you, also hopefully for your colleagues, so we can all get comfortable talking about a really, yeah, difficult subject. So let me introduce our panel. Joe uh, was web developer advocate for Samsung Internet, passionate about VR, web Bluetooth, progressive web apps, and great CSS. She's got seven years' experience as front-end developer and has worked in various parts of the tech industry, from startups, agencies, and charities to large organizations. She's also a mentor and organizer for CodeBar, where she's able to action her passion, not only for teaching good use of web, but also for improving the diversity and inclusivity of the tech industry. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Kate is a software engineering coach. She describes herself as an aspiring leader. I describe her as an inspiring leader. Um, oh, I know, right? Please continue. She's, uh, she's kind of, that's on the sheet, by the way. It is. I did write it. I was worried I wasn't. I was worried I was gonna forget to be nice, so I did write it down on the sheet. You're not gonna get through everyone's bias if you keep on with this formula. <laughs> that's Kate. <laughs> Mary King is product owner. Hey, Mary, how are you doing? Hi. Do you feel nice and relaxed yet? Very. Very? No. No? Mary was very worried about our event today. I knew, knew we were going to be a lovely audience for her. Mary is product owner at IESO Digital Health. She's blessed with working for an amazing bunch of people attempting to defeat mental illness with a combination of cognitive behavioural therapy, software and artificial intelligence. She's passionate about getting the best out of people by aligning their enthusiasms with the needs of the business. Itty also works at ISO Digital Health. Uh, he's a front-end developer there. 
a role which involves having one foot in the world of design and the other in software engineering. He loves his job, his team, and most importantly, that he gets to work building great tools and services in the mental health tech space. I'm Ben, I'm a developer and consultant for ThoughtBot. I've done the opposite of a lot of people um, and become a developer having done other roles in tech and I've had to experience too much developers and technologists being treated as widget makers. So what's great about my role now and the clients we get to work with is we're valued and we get to really provide clear value for employers and we are valued by our clients. That's that. Joe, a nice easy question to start us off with. Excellent. What does fulfillment mean to you? So for me, fulfillment has a kind of, it almost has a hierarchy kind of like, I don't know if you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Lots of nuts, good. So fulfillment, like to even start to think about getting onto the fulfillment scale with regards to, so we're talking about fulfillment in your work as a developer. I feel like the first thing that your company, your employer needs to offer you is the ability to be your authentic self in the office, to bring your full self into work, to not be afraid that you know, you're going to have any kind of judgment or prejudice against you for whatever reason, and that you're not expending that sort of mental energy, either worrying about the fact that you do need to hide some part of yourself or actually having to hide that part of yourself. So I think that's sort of our base level of our hierarchy of fulfillment. Then I think the important part is having a good feedback loop where you're able to set goals and achieve those goals and be told whether or not you're achieving those goals well and which parts you need to improve on because I think improvement is kind of the top of our triangle of fulfillment so if your company is offering you the ability to improve your knowledge to improve you know a particular skill that you want to work on and that you're supported in doing that that you're given the time and space to do that and that your improvement and your sort of self-actualization in what you want the role to be is supported I guess Another thing that sort of goes alongside of that for me is, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, uh, you can do well or you can do good. And it's sort of, it comes from the fact that when you're doing work, you need that work to align with your goals and your ethics and your beliefs. And you can do well, you can have your boss tell you, that, you know, that code that you wrote was great. But if you're making something that doesn't align with your beliefs, you will never feel like you're doing good. And I think that that's also a really important part of fulfillment. So that is my answer. Kay, do you help people do good? I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Have you been doing good in your role? I think Makers really helps people do good. So she's uh, one of directors for uh, Makers Bootcamp here in London. So she looks after the Academy programme, which I was able to do last year. Do you help every month a lot of people do good? You need to talk now. Okay. Um, <laughs> would you like, would you I, like me to I, form that as a sentence? I, I struggle with that, with, that, with that question, I think. But I think less from a fulfillment side. As, as part of my role, there's a lot of helping people get jobs, right? And so they, they learn some stuff, and then they go and like, actually apply that in the world. And uh, when, I, when I, I'm working with like, a, a group of developers, and you can sort of see them starting their careers, and you think, all these people are going to go out and actually make like a pretty large amount of infrastructure that like the whole world is going to be living on is that actually going to make anything better and i think the thing that it does in me when i was an educator is 
do I really trust these people actually represent like a similar sort of moral to me and will they go into an environment where one day, I think I thought about running this workshop but I never did, that someday as a developer somebody will ask you to do something that you don't think is right and are you going to actually go and do that thing or are you not, are you not going to do it and not doing it is quite courageous. And so I don't actually know really if the developers who come out of Makers, I hope they do, but I don't know if, if any of us would always have the strength to say no to something that we thought was genuinely not right as a developer or whether we would sort of do ourselves down and say, well, I mean, if I don't do it, another developer will, which I guess plays into fulfillment somehow because I guess you have to sit with the stuff that you build, the stuff that you create for the rest of your your life, whether it's building the giant killing robots or, or something. I mean, it sounds funny, but they exist, right? <laughs> They're out there now. <laughs> sort of for me, I think that if you are fulfilled at work, then you're in a position where you actually do feel like you're able to say, that's not what I should be doing, that's not what we should be doing. And it, it puts you in a position where you are able to, as Joe said, kind of be your authentic self and to bring who you are. And that includes your morals, that includes kind of what you think is right. And so sort of for us, having a team of developers who are aligned with what they believe and aligned with what they think we should be doing as a company but also what we should be doing as kind of human beings is really important and I think that kind of helps them to really commit to what they're doing and what they're bringing because they are actually it is them in, in entirety rather than just their work selves I suppose. I worked in a development agency once that had one designer and so that designer had this like power of veto over like anything we did because it just couldn't be designed if he didn't want to do it. Mm. And he was quite senior. And so we never worked with any gambling companies because he, he personally would never work with them. That's something that we have the freedom as ThoughtBot consultants to say is like, actually, we don't want to work on that. We don't want to work on a project. We have personal issues kind of with it. We mainly based in the US. So there's time where we decided not to work with a certain fast food company that had supported anti-gay rights legislation in the States, as an example, but even just on a personal level, it's, there's no judgment. I wouldn't pretend there's not an impact of that, because if I say no to a London project, that's more likely mean that I'll have to end up supporting remotely a US project, and that is naturally going to impact my happiness and my fulfillment, but there is still you know, that degree of control over, do I support this? Can I do a good job? Am I really going to provide value if I don't like the client if I don't like the product that we're kind of building. Can I say something? Yeah. <laughs> cool. The thing I thought was good was because no. I remember when we talked before about yeah. um Betty mentioned there about like authentic self mm -hmm. and that we talked a lot when we talked a bit about this event, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. Well there's, there's already points been made, so I'm kinda of like, yeah, just what these guys said. But for me personally, like fulfillment is this thing, it's gotta come from inside each individual. And so the idea of creating an environment where somebody can be themselves, if you can be yourself in an environment and, so, and the company that you're working for can protect who you are and how you want to express yourself, then they can make you a really good developer and they're going to really care about your career. If they can't care about you as a human, your career is going to shit already. I'm not allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> I didn't read that thing from Mozilla. <laughs> uh, now you're breaking the mic, you see. Oh, no, At least we were going to have to beat that out before. I said I would drop the mic. I did say I would drop the mic. I'm awesome. So, yeah, that was the on? second point which I wanted to make, which is about failure, right? <laughs> Being able to fail and just have a good laugh at it is part of the idea of fulfillment. Being able to make mistakes and know that you're in a safe environment, express yourself like what Melody was saying, 
uh, within our company, everybody is kind of able to express themselves. And that doesn't mean that we all conform, we all agree. We definitely don't. And that kind of tension in a safe environment is actually really beautiful. It's hard, it's really difficult, and if you can't find the words, like I usually can't, it requires other people to listen a little bit more intently, right? As engineers, sometimes we kind of expect it to be 140 characters, kind of like summarize yourself in, but then if we want people to be people, expression isn't just in words, especially if somebody doesn't speak the same language as you. And that's not just necessarily different languages across the world, that's also visual speakers, or people who uh, never went to university and studied how to become a computer scientist, but they came in through web or through business or through something else. And having a safe environment for all those people to come together and create something, to me, that's a sense of fulfillment. I mean, you touched on that, Joe, didn't you? Like the, the collaboration skills, the elements about our job that aren't just bashing away at syntax all day. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know whether it's the right word for it, but the word that I tend to use for that is cognitive diversity. Having a, a team where not everybody thinks the same and not everybody has the same background and not everybody comes to conclusions in the same way, I think makes your job so much more fulfilling because you're learning every day and you're, you're much more likely to come to a successful conclusion to a problem because you've suddenly got all these angles to it that you just wouldn't have if you had five Cambridge graduates all in the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Cambridge graduates. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably something, some actual disagreement there because I guess it's like, yes, people can have lots of different opinions, but in the end of it, like there has to be some consistency in the code or at least consistency in how you're approaching certain subjects. And sometimes it's really obvious, isn't it, where just like you can see different people's hands on it that have like disagreed with each other entirely on how to kind of kind of implement that. I guess it's. Sure. Yeah, like I wonder, it's like, yeah, how can you have all that disagreement in your communication, but then still somehow align in the end when it comes to the delivery of what you're trying to do? I guess the important thing about understanding cognitive diversity is understanding that people do think differently to you and doesn't mean that the way that they want to do it is wrong. And so you have to then come to some consensus and, you know, make guidelines and make rules for how your code is going to look and how you're going to work together and what code reviews look like and how are you going to work together? Are you going to pair? Are people going to be remote? How's that going to work? Are you going to have meetings? If so, are they going to be on a video? Is everybody going to be on a video? Like You need to think about the fact that everybody has entirely different circumstances, as you said, mm -hmm. and you have to allow for those. Mm. These feel mainly like a lot of the growing pains that you will have had to experience very recently as like a growing team. Yeah, we've... Um We've certainly had some sort of very strong differences in some of the teams around perceptions of how things should be done, uh, retrospectives and the usual sort of processes to bringing up these sort of disagreements or um, sort of misunderstandings is, has worked really well. It's also because we've tried really hard to make it so that everybody feels safe to be able to express how they're feeling on things. I've been able to bring two retrospectives that actually some of the, the technical disagreements that are coming into the retrospectives don't feel like they sit comfortably there, which meant that one of the teams I was working with actually set up a bicker time so that they had a set amount of time where they could just sit and debate the issues that they couldn't come to a, an agreement of that was literally sucking up the time of the team. And it kind of allowed them to put it aside. 
so that it wasn't sort of seeping into all of the conversations they were having as a team. It was literally restricted to actually, should we just park that for Becca time? And it was their suggestion. I didn't name it that because <laughs> that would be a bit patronising. But they came up with it. It works for them and it seems to have smoothed the way um, for them to collaborate and work better as a team because there's no longer the, the strain of, oh no, this is going to come up again. They've also put in place rules themselves about how long they're allowed to sort of have these arguments if the same argument comes around again, then it's like, can we get someone else in to time keep or to make sure that how we're going to present it at the end and what the and this was just sort of conversations to how we're going to do this, and that has really made the team work more smoothly. You can see that the developers are more comfortable sharing their ideas with each other because they're not going to be argued down or disagreed with or whatever. They are just able to to express how they feel which is important. Okay, the makers coaches are very reluctant, aren't they, to get involved in the disagreements of student teams? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, never. Uh, yeah, it's a losing battle uh, because it doesn't really matter anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the obvious answer is that, that these conflicts happen in the real world all the time anyway. And provided that the emotions stay within like a reasonably okay range, um, which is always something that you do have to keep a bit of an eye on. Yeah, it's something that they're going to encounter. Yeah. I have a small anecdote that seems to relate, if you'd like to hear that. Yeah. yeah. It's not one of mine. It's from, it's from Google, apparently. Uh, it's the story, did anyone hear the story about how um, Google Maps Satellite almost became named Bird Mode? It's, you heard you heard this. Another happy news reader. I'm ashamed, ashamed to call out. Yeah, so Google were trying to like work out their, their problem of, of having like a bunch of meetings with reasonably like mid to high level people and solve product questions like what something will be called that everyone has an opinion on but like probably isn't the most important thing. And so they were someone had pitched Google Maps satellite mode, remember that a magic moment where you could go see your house on the internet and they were like how did they get a photo of my house etc uh, so they were trying to discuss what to call it and so some google person was just like let's just set a timer on this discussion and the last thing said before the timer <laughs> is the thing it has to be called and so they just like kept kept coming up with stuff and then eventually like i think it was one of the big google people who you'll have heard the name of just said like bird mode boom that's it it's called bird mode and then they <laughs> For some reason, reversed it, which kind of ruins the whole thing. Um, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, to be called bird mode? You could essentially game that, right? Which mm -hmm. is what that clearly successful manager at Google did. Which is, he does, doesn't need to talk for 44 minutes and 95 seconds, yeah, but as long yeah. as he speaks that last five seconds. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess is what I, as I was thinking. Like, hey, you've got a lot to pack into the 12-week course, and so like collaborating with peers is like very important. I guess the one element that you know isn't reasonable for the course to provide but is an element of the real world where as soon as developers get in there is yeah. that like managing up mm -hmm. and actually you, there is a different mode or I guess there can be a different mode to having to kind of communicate with managers but there may be a successful workplace that doesn't feel like such a thing. You know I sort of thought something more interesting to say about your earlier question now. I guess the reason that bird mode thing works is because it's like it's saying, if you don't solve this yourselves, then I'm going to pick a really, really silly way of like making this decision. We're just going to set the timer and it's going to be bird mode because that's what it is. And then it puts the responsibility back on the team to like 
figure out how to make those decisions effectively, which seems like maybe it's a bit like what you're talking about. And I guess it's the same at makers as well. Like as if coaches were adjudicators of conflict, it would be about who was right. And actually it's not, it's about like how you resolve conflict. And if it's like, oh wait, no one's gonna come and resolve this conflict for me. So I guess we're just gonna have to like try and figure out how to make it work. That's probably quite good. And maybe it's fulfilling, just to drop that in there. But Eagle, when we did the course, I was always right, wasn't I? <laughs> I don't remember being wrong at any point. Thank you for calling me yeah, out. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, but as far as I remember, you were right about 1%. Okay, about 1%. <laughs> I'm happy about that. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. PricingWire has helped more than 1,000 software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what they're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, PricingWire delivers easy-to-understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, PricingWire can help. Just go to pricingwire.com and book a strategy session today. Whether you need to organize your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if uses-based pricing is best for you, PricingWire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. Um, Itty, are you ever wrong at work? Uh, probably, man. When's the last time you were wrong at work? <laughs> That's a bad uh, question. Well, actually, I totally forgot about this talk today. <laughs> That's how wrong I was. Because <laughs> my calendar didn't sync up is what I'm going to blame. But in reality, my calendar is so messed up, which is another thing that I do wrong. So I don't look at it, which is the third thing that I do wrong. <laughs> right? So let's just make this about a therapy session for me. And let me admit all the things that I did wrong today. So then we had a fire alarm, a real one, not the test one. And we're leaving, and Liam, the, my product owner guy, he's kind of cool. Uh, he turns around, he goes, what are you going to talk about? And we had a cross-team review. So I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to do this demo of the thing that I've been building, and I'm going to drop my thing again. <laughs> and uh, so I tell him I'm going to do a demo of the thing I'm building, and he's like, why the hell would you do that for a fulfilled development talk in London with football? And I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to drop the car off for my wife so she could pick my daughter to run to the train, get the train, come here, uh, just to kind of ground myself and get ready for talking here, right? So that's a hell load of wrongs. But I don't feel like I've done anything wrong. I don't feel like I completely screwed up. I feel kind of okay with that cascade of wrongness. And I guess that's also a part of bringing it all back to the fulfilled developer thing. I feel like we just end the sentence with that just to kind of make it feel like we're still talking about the same subject. <laughs> but um... Well, you did a classic gripe there that I, I sometimes think is the flip side of where developers get a bit more freedom to create their own kind of working culture within organizations, which is that you didn't look at your damn calendar, yes. which is like, like how developers don't look at their damn email. And it's like... All calendar. All calendar. And it's like sometimes you can be given that freedom to be more yourselves within like a team context, but still I feel like, you know, developers still also have to play by the rules of the organizations and the other things that are going on. And that means like checking your damn email and checking your damn calendar, mm. you know, yeah. even if it's only a few points during the day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, the, and, and for me, that's where the whole kind of, the idea of environment and team is really important. 
Like, I didn't have to do my cross-team review demo. As far as everybody was concerned, they were like, you've got to run, right? Like, to them, it was the team's problem all of a sudden. I wasn't letting anybody else down. Coming here and admitting this to everybody here. Like, either you're going to think I'm a complete fool, or you're going to think, like, that guy is a complete fool. <laughs> One slightly nicer than the other. And yeah, you do. You do have a massive responsibility. And that's the beauty of allowing people to be who they are. Very quickly, you will get a team. If you're working remotely with people who have a very different background from your own, you're working as a one developer learning a new language. We've got C-sharp guys who have to do JavaScript. It's absolute hell for them. I mean, I love it. I came from JavaScript. I'm still a JavaScript guy. But it's, it's, it's hell for them, right? How do you resolve those issues without just turning around and saying, well, this is what Dan Abramov says in his blog, and this is the rules, you know? It doesn't mean anything to them. So you allow people to be who they are as quickly as they are, and these things bubble up to the top. And then we use our, just our humanity to resolve that and then focus on the goal again. You know, and that's where great leaders come in. They know when to, as the maker group kind of thing, in my puppy years, I've never been there, but I'm sure it's cool. Right? Like you, you can't try and resolve, there's no right answers. It's a series of experiences. And being able to play out those experiences and do your best, you're either gonna fall far behind or you're gonna keep up. And everybody will run with you or they'll lose the ball, whatever, but it's a team sport. And uh, that's how you make a fulfilled developer. <laughs> There must be a lot of what you have to teach Joe in Codebar as well as, again, the technical. It's like how to be part of a team, how to be open about these Yeah, things. so one of the things that we teach at Codebar, um, we run something called a failure swap shop. And the idea is we get the junior developers who are all very afraid of making a mistake and think that it's going to be the end of the world you know, when they make their first mistake in their job and they're going to get fired and they're never going to get hired again and their name is going to be blasted across the internet. You know, and we get them sat with a bunch of people who've been in the industry for a while and we do this failure swap shop where you stand up and you say, hi, my name's Joe and I f***ed up. And everyone says, like, hi, Joe. And you say, you know, it was Friday. I'd had a couple of beers. I forgot that I needed to push to production. I pushed to production at 5 o'clock. I accidentally pushed one client's website to another client's server. Uh, whoops. And they kind of go, like, oh, well, what happened? And you're like, well, on Monday, I got an email from the client. And they said, why is my flowers website suddenly about cars? And you're like, refresh? Oh, it's fine now. OK, bro. And, you know, I didn't get fired, I still have a job, I still can get hired by other people, and it's okay. And you sort of teach them that it's, it's much better to own up to your mistakes and to foster this sort of blameless culture where you look at the system that allowed you to make that mistake than it is to, A, stress out, feel like you don't belong, get that feeling of imposter syndrome, or get that anxiety where, you know, you're so worried about the mistake that you sit there trying to fix it for five hours when you could you know, maybe talk to somebody about it and work it out together. Blameless culture is something that I think is really important in a team where you, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been allowed to push to production at five o'clock on a Friday after I'd had a couple of beers. Maybe we needed to review that as an option. And in fact, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something, something I had to pick up from my poor suffering development director, some of his code from a project recently. And it's like that sense of, Oh, damn, if you, if you wrote it this way, there must be a really good reason for it. And why aren't I getting it? And how long do I struggle on this thing on clients' time before I ask someone else? And then how much of that is about my ego? Also, maybe just Rob didn't do it right, you know. 
perish the thought, maybe. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Rob is suddenly being, you know, l low of ego when he's constantly telling us he's never wrong in the office all day. <laughs> never been wrong. Never been wrong. Never had a bad idea. Never had a bad idea. Just want to check sure that the mic is kind of collecting all of Rob's <laughs> wonderful wisdom. Yeah. Can you push to production on Friday at IESO? Very, very, very rarely. Very, very rarely. <laughs> but we do, my boss, especially Liam, the chap that um, AC mentioned earlier, is definitely someone who's sort of trying to foster it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes, that we as a team are there to catch each other, to support each other, to be aware of each other's mistakes. We're an entire scrum team, we're not an individual so if a developer makes a mistake or if a product person makes a mistake then the tech lead is welcome to point it out to help us make it better the QA can catch it if a QA doesn't catch something then why didn't the dev or a PO or whatever it's all around the whole team and all of us kind of working together we were talking about sort of devs being able to sort of be authentic and, and be themselves and have their own space and sort of set their own work environment and in a sense, that's really good, but we have had kind of historically at IESO almost too much of that. We have had an entire like autonomy of dev teams will be able to do whatever they want, build whatever they, and the real sense of like that. There is a balance with that. People want to have the freedom to choose how they build something or to be able to have a voice within the conversation as to what's built and how it's done. But we don't necessarily want to leave people to make all of the decisions by themselves without support because they don't have that context, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the information from the rest of the business mm. in that role. So we need to work together as a team to make sure that everyone has that. We need to put guidelines in place or support in place or conversations in place to make sure that people have the ability and the freedom to make the decisions that they are capable and happy and confident to make and not be forcing people to be making decisions or to be empowered or free in an area that they're not actually confident or that they're not actually sort of willing or able to do. Just because we want to be autonomous doesn't necessarily mean that we're comfortable doing it. Yeah, yeah you know, I guess more background to one of the previous, my previous answers was around going into a role where the dev team was quite unhappy and very unfulfilled. And I don't know if we, we could have done it any differently, but the action that me and a couple of colleagues with leadership responsibility took was to help support the team in creating the team culture and the team support and the trust within the team. But that came at the expense of supporting the team within the broader organisation. So I think we succeeded probably in the short term. We probably succeeded in a tactical sense of helping that team feel more together and more as a group but that came at the expense of them feeling isolated and, if anything, more distant from the rest of the organisation and the people, in the end, kind of, you know, defining a lot of what they're doing or at least whether they're satisfied mm. with, the, with the role that happened. I'm not sure, even with a couple of years' hindsight, what the organisation needed to have changed to support that digital team to be happier and more fulfilled in what they're doing. Because in the end, I, I'm still not convinced that that is an organisation that cares about what it's doing with digital, with technology. I think they still see it as like an annoying inconvenience. And like, you know, that thing that has to kind of be done. Yeah. So like there's an annual cycle to the organization and digital has been fitted into that. So there is a site and there is a platform and there are things that need enhancements, which, yeah, I don't know if that will ever really for them lead to a very happy development team. Yeah, you kind of feel like you need a development team to be involved in the heart of the business. 
In our company, we're not uh, an entirely software company. We're a, a service company. We have a clinical side as well, so we have therapists, and we have to sort of think about the, the service we're offering as well as the software. So our product is the mixture of both, which makes the, the development thing slightly different because we aren't actually the centre of the product. We are merely, merely, we are the bit that makes it work, but we are part of it. We're not the whole of it. So it's given me a slightly different view on how you actually pull a development team into the heart of a company because if you are a purely software company you tend to be at sort of slightly more at the heart of it anyway but when you're already on the outside and you've got an AI data science team and a clinical team and a patient services team and you need to sort of I'm biased because I'm from in the product side rather than a developer but if you have a good strong product management sort of function and a good strong development sort of manager function you can pull them together and get people involved in the right conversations making sure that people actually have a voice can see what's happening in the different departments and they really are kind of integrated but as soon as you don't have that at the higher level it's, it's really hard to do it sort of on the ground. Yeah. You need the buy-in of the company, or at least enough people hire. <laughs> to keep my promo for makers going, I mean, that's something that, you know, in the hiring partners, obviously ThoughtBot was one of them, that when you're, like, trying to vet companies that want developers, isn't it, something you try and ensure that developers aren't just on the sidelines? Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's definitely, like, we definitely do a lot of vetting. There's vetting that's, like, really basic, like, are there actually any developers here? Like, is it just, like, a joke company that you've set up to trick us or something like that? And then there's, like, something, like, slightly more advanced, like, are the consequences of failure as a developer in the company tolerable to someone junior? Or are they just going to be, like, so afraid of failure that they're never going to grow? But isn't it okay to be on the side of something sometimes? Mm. I know it's like software is eating the world and everything like that. I've been in companies where like development was the central thing we did to the extent that like developers were like 80% of the company and companies where software engineering was like part of it and actually a lot of my role was to try to tell people you don't need software engineering so let's not do any and actually I've done quite a lot of that at Makers as well ironically we don't actually build that much software internally. I think if you hire developers and you say you're going to come here and you're going to build some great software and then the team you're hiring into then doesn't actually build any great software because the company's not trying to build software, that's probably going to cause you a bunch of problems. And I think this is more of a problem in actual recruitment. Probably what you should be saying to these people is, this is what we're trying to do as a company, and this is where your work fits in to that. But it's about this larger thing. Like, I think there was one, there was one company who a colleague of mine worked for that did implanted medical devices. And so their software process was just out of a nightmare, literally, because it would have to be specified and accredited upfront, everything about the software, and then you would have to write the software to that spec, and then it would have to be like vigorously assessed by some other people who would then like tell you whether your, your software actually conformed to the specification or not. But the developers there were okay with this. I mean, it was frustrating, but like they were okay with it because this stuff is going into people and it needs to work. And this sort of process, although it was like a bit horrifying, it was like extremely rigorous and it like caught nearly everything that you could possibly catch in, in software. And I know there's like reliable software 
schemes off in some far off US place far away from Silicon Valley. And so I think it's about like vision really. I think you can be fulfilled on a bit on the side of a company, but it does mean the company needs to be real about you're not just here because you like software, you're here because you feel like what the company is doing is something you want to be a part of. And I think with developers, a lot of people, like you said about widget makers, they just sort of forget. They're like, developers, basically what they want to do is like spend their Fridays off like learning, I don't know, what's the good stuff at the moment? Rust? Uh, <laughs> have I just dated myself? Um, <laughs> yeah, but actually like you do need to put the work into getting your development teams, particularly in companies where it's not obvious how software fits in, to understand what they're working towards just like any other team. Like, I imagine finance in companies also, they're not thinking, well, finance should be the center of the business, but they understand that they're working towards something bigger. I think it, it absolutely fits back in with that thing about, you know, depending on what your ethics are. Mm -hmm. I used to work at a children's charity where we, it was an anti-bullying charity, and the tech was absolutely the sideline. Like the main part of it was that they offered counseling to children who were being bullied, but they also offered this little chat service. So if you're in crisis or if you just wanted to you know, chat to other kids, there was this chat service available. And, you know, what we were building wasn't particularly stellar tech, but we got stats at the end of every month for how many children we'd safeguarded who hadn't taken their own lives that month. And that is incredibly fulfilling, yeah. tech aside. Kind of plays into with the, the fulfillment side of like around recruitment and making sure that sort of both on the side of the company that when you're recruiting, you're being clear and open and honest about what your company is like, what the culture's like, what the people you're working with are like, what you're trying to sort of achieve. But also when you're looking for roles, it's about actually genuinely thinking about what makes you happy, what type of, because people are all different. There isn't a, a, a one size fits all for what will make someone fulfilled at work. Some of the developers in our team, were what will make them happiest is being in the center of a room filled with business domain experts, listening to them and drawing on whiteboards and having kind of these massive ideas and plans and sort of wondrous blue sky thinking. And there are other developers on our team that that would literally give them nightmares and they would love to just crawl in a hole with a computer and just be left alone to build something. So it's about understanding what makes you as an individual happy and then trying to find that. How do you make those two extremes work within, uh, within one team? <laughs> a lot of listening, a lot of understanding, a lot of trying to get each other to see each other's perspectives. So it, it, when you're outside of a, a conversation, when you're outside of a group, it's a lot easier to see what's going wrong or why people are misunderstanding each other or how people are working when they're engaged with the two particular developers I'm thinking of, it is literally about they don't understand each other's perspectives. They are both wonderful people. They are literally everyone I use is really nice, but like they are really, really lovely people, but they just didn't understand why the other one wasn't engaging in the same way. And sitting down and just sort of having a conversation with them quietly, saying, well, actually, have you thought about the fact that you being like this, that's how that makes them feel? And have you thought about how that may come across if someone was like that to you, if that's how you felt? It kind of puts them in a position where they are more able to see. It's down to them at the end of the day. If they don't want to see the other person's perspective, then they're not going to. You can't make them. 
but you can help them. And when you're on the outside, it's a lot easier to help a colleague than it is. You don't have to be their boss. You don't have to be anyone. You just have to be someone who cares enough to listen and pay attention to how other people are interacting with each other. And as long as you give that information in a sort of, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not telling you anything. I'm just saying, this is what I've seen. Then people can do with it as they will and they take it a lot better. It doesn't always work. We haven't got it perfect. We, we really haven't. But we're getting a lot better and a lot closer. And I think it really helps because the, most of the people who've ended up working for AISO are people who genuinely care about mental health. And because we've got a very strong alignment between what all of the different aspects of the company, so all of the different types of people that work there, all care about mental health. And probably because we've come across it, in one way or another, so people are a bit more open to it and a bit more aware, not necessarily of the extremes, but just of the day-to-day, -day, how people feel, how people react, how people respond, and that makes them more open to listening and more open to talking. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just making it more okay. I think the word you haven't used there is like, lots of process. Fulfilled. Oh, sorry. You know, yes. no, no, lots no, like of process. Well, we, uh, <laughs> no, no. So, so, no. So it's, and I think that's something I've struggled with when going from a low trust culture to a high trust culture like ThoughtBot is not thinking in terms of process, which scary, down, right? it's scary, it's scary, yeah. scary. Because I think process can fill in for trust, especially when you're not really sure if you really do trust your colleagues to check over their run the linter or whatever it is that people don't do. It's quite nice to be able to say, listen, the process is this and you haven't done it, therefore I mean, I can't fire you, but like eventually, if you keep doing this, you'll be fired because it's in the documents. Um, <laughs> so it is quite reassuring process, I think. Also terrifying. I think that's also an important point that you make, though. You have a clear guideline of the kind of behavior that you expect. And if somebody genuinely doesn't fit that behavior and you can't talk them around, they're not fitting in with the team, they don't want to work the same as the way that you outlined the way that you work, then, you know, they are free to leave and go and work somewhere that they will fit in better. Sure, be inclusive and be as you know open as you can and talk to as many people as you can, but also accept that some people aren't going to fit in with the culture that you want to foster and that that's okay as well. One thing that really goes wrong though is going from one to the other. <laughs> that's not <Yeah>. fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the responsibility of, well it's everybody's responsibility, but that's really kind of where your so-called senior or your tech leads kind of step in, like like the, the anecdote that you give Kali about the once the time ran out, they just came up with the word. It's the same sort of thing, like, you know, you allow everyone to bubble up, so you hear these things, you hear someone's intent early on, and if it's not going to fit with the culture of the goal that you're trying to go for, then you expect somebody who's got a little bit more senior experience to take on the brunt of that person's character or problem, whatever it may be to focus everybody to that goal, almost like a, a laser focus towards that goal. And then the retrospective is super important, and I think this is also what, what gets missed out, that if you are going to be slightly dictatorial, if that's the word, I don't think it is, but it may be. Uh, if you're going to kind of say to people, this is the guideline, do this, follow this process, blah, 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 then there has to be a point afterwards where you can sit back with the people that you forced to follow the process and say, now let's relook at that process. If it's a linter, you kind of want to say, you know, were these the right rules and can we change the linting? And like you're talking about the pushing on Friday thing, right? It's kind of like, cool, all right, we, we screwed up, but 
How do we change the process and automate the damn thing? Because people shouldn't be responsible for processes, robot shit. And yeah, you know, there's free people up to be people. There are a few processes though, aren't we, that some of us are certainly zealous about, which is at least some consistent form of an agile, scrummy process, right? You know, in terms of like how we work in day. As well as about how agile <laughs> we, yeah. Because I guess what I was thinking there is like, okay, it's not always clear when the timer does run out. It's not always as easy as saying, I will just have a 45 minute conversation. Yeah. And I guess it feels like, you know, a weekly cycle, a fortnightly cycle, whatever it is where you know you're gonna hit certain activities, certain workshops at certain points, at minimum the retro, that can still be like your timer, isn't it? Or, you know, effectively, and that feels like a good one, a good balance there for sometimes problems that maybe aren't clear to identify as you're going along. I guess though, if you don't have the trust in the team to acknowledge the same thing that's being worked on in your retro as last time. You know, someone that hasn't taken action since the last one. I guess that's maybe, yeah. Oh yeah, and it's the, not taking the ultimate sign of trust is the compulsory retro actions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't get through our retro actions last week. <laughs> Who were these assigned to? What was the due date? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have those? I'm pretty sure there's a poster on my monitor about defining something for the handbook that I haven't yet. I just feel like I should be asking you questions. The, the yeah. question I want to know is, what's the third column in the retro called at your company? So, <laughs> see, this is the problem because Tom, Tom is strongly anti-ever a third column in the retros. And he is multiple times where I've been facilitating retros. Stri you know, I, I, there's too many columns, too many columns, Ben. He's, he's normally more subtle about it, but I've, I've got the point which meant the last time I facilitated our studio retro, I put one column and that didn't really work either. So <laughs> clearly for ThoughtBot London, two columns is the perfect number of columns. I got tired at Makers after a while and started doing uh, various things, did a big long line from like great to like makes me extremely angry and people would just put stuff on it, which is quite fun. So refusing to acknowledge a binary kind of retro activity. Yeah, yeah. sometimes I'd even have a vertical axis as well, which is like importance or something. No, Tom wouldn't like that. That sounds like four though, Tom, doesn't it? You wouldn't like that. You're overrating my opinion too. <laughs> I think that's probably why we've started doing, well, we've been trying to track sort of like a, a minimum viable agility. I hate that phrase. I really do. But... We've got several different teams that are all working um, and they've all got slightly different things that they want to do, slightly different ways they want to work. And so we've had conversations across the whole of the development team to say, what do we feel as a full development team are the absolute minimum things that every team should be doing consistently so that we have this sort of understanding as a, an, a whole dev team, because otherwise we're disappearing off down rabbit holes of individual scrum teams do things in certain ways, which doesn't work with other individual scrum teams and so you get a really strong scrum team and a really weak development team and then that causes problems with throwing things over the fence and kind of oh well that's their service so that's their problem or my QA is on holiday well you can't have ours because we're like it, it just becomes really sort of playgroundy but if you can find a way to make the whole team have the consistency and having a retrospective, we all agreed, was important. But what the format was, how it was done, how long it was, everything like that is left down to the Scrum Masters and the team to agree. What else is on the list, Itty? What's the rest of the minimum viable Agile? Um, we're coining that. Can we coin it? 
No. You have to ask Craig, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that we found, well, that I found really interesting was for people who don't want to be as agile because they're super awesome engineers and they've figured something great out, but they can't make it work in a team. Those kind of people are awesome, but terrible when it actually comes to developing a product. Um, <laughs> but the thing that we found, or the thing that I've begun to witness, was the idea of a kind of appreciation in retrospectives. Turning around and saying, hey, you know what, that one time you came over and you told me that thing, that was epic, man. Like, you know, I was racking my head, blah, 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 blah. And then what happens is as those individuals try to focus on their problem, they realize that there's a series of things they could do to help other people in the team, things that they're appreciated for, which if they join the team, if they follow some form of basic process, minimal viable, whatever the thing was, agility thing, they get their sense of reward. That's what they're really looking for as great engineers, as great human beings. They're looking for a sense of tackling a problem, hitting a goal, and that sense of reward. And sometimes the way that tickets work, and then if you add a score to something and then you don't do it in that point allocation and stuff like this, for particular people, that's actually introduces a lot more anxiety because you're meant to be right at the beginning. And it takes a lot for you to trust a system like that if you've not worked that way before. But the idea of having this kind of appreciation board and knowing that actually I could help this person out and that's, that's worth more points than this one ticket. You know, and then that encourages people to begin following process, working in a team and everything else. And I, I think, Joe, you mentioned something about appreciation retros. Yeah, so something that I always try and do in the retro. So a few companies ago, I worked in a place where we had a two column retro and the columns were smiley face, sad face. And the smiley face column was there as a nicety. You could put things in the smiley face column, but there was no actions to be done because the smiley face column is the smiley face column. <laughs> so what I always tried to do whenever I was, you know, writing my million post-it notes of things to go in the sad face column, that I always wrote a, you know, the designer did a really awesome job. I really love the thing that we released and you know this dev helped me with the pairing on this and that was super awesome so that you could have a little appreciation of everything that the people in your team did and the reverse of that I've worked in teams where you get zero feedback on how you're doing and zero feedback on whether you're doing enough and it has a tendency especially in people who work in the tech industry we've generally I mean I'm you know I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but we've generally been higher up in our classes at school. We've generally been sort of achievers. We have this tendency to want to know that we're doing well, to have our teacher give us that A grade to, you know, get the next diploma, the next qualification, all the rest of it. And when you're not getting that feedback and you're not getting someone saying, hey, you did a great job, you start to get anxiety and you start to think, like, am I doing enough? Do I need to work harder? Maybe I'll you know, take a half an hour lunch break instead of an hour and I'll keep working and maybe I'll check my emails in the evening before I go to sleep and maybe I'll just double check what's going on in Slack over the weekend. And you start to get into that place where you're very swiftly moving towards like overwork and burnout just because you're not getting that little bit of feedback and that little like, hey, you did a really great job on that thing. Yeah. Nothing will make me roll my eyes more than when I hear, don't worry, you'll only hear from me if you're doing something wrong. Oh, that phrase. It's like, no, grow some leadership skills. Like, you need to work with these people. You need to encourage them. It's you remind me of that phrase yeah. tomorrow, grow some oh, leadership well. skills. Exactly. <laughs> we need to get time and we want to allow some time for questions. So let's go, final last summing up question. How do we ensure that we keep these conversations going internally, that we keep everyone reflecting on how to 
talk more about this so that we can all be in more fulfilled workplaces. I don't think there is, and this is going to really, really ruin it for everyone else after me. Um, there's something you spoke about, I think, called compulsion to discourse, where this is one of those things where I think it feels like we should be talking about it more, but actually we talk about it all the time. And I think there's like very little danger of us ever not talking about like what it means to be fulfilled at work. It feels like because we all, not all of us, but like most of us go to work every day and then sometimes we leave it thinking, was I fulfilled that day? Or some, some analogous phrase. Um, it feels like something that we're always going to be talking about with our friends after work, probably for the rest of human history, as long as work continues to exist as a thing. So um, good luck, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that it's true that you will continue to talk about it with your friends and your peers. I think the way that you actually make this kind of conversation happen and make changes is if you have these conversations with your managers, with your tech leads, with anybody in your organisation who can make a difference. Everyone can. But having the conversations, being honest about what actually would make you feel happier, not just what you think they want you to say, not just what you feel should make you happier, but actually genuinely what would make you happier. Because I can't speak for every boss in the world, for sure, but knowing what my direct reports, what scares them, what they don't want to do, what they see as their weaknesses, and what genuinely would make them happier, means that I can help to structure their objectives so that they're actually working towards what makes them happier. It means that I can put them in teams or in the roles that they are interested in, that they want to do, and all ones that challenge them, that they're terrified of, but I know that I can put support around them. So it's to making sure that you are having these conversations, but not just with your friends, with people people who can actually do something. The idea of being kind of responsible for your own sense of joy, your own sense of happiness, being able to communicate that to the people around you, to the team around you, listening for those moments in people. There's not necessarily going to be, somebody's going to stand up and say like, yep, yeah, okay, cool, this is the thing that makes me happy, this is what makes me fulfilled. But there'll be these, these little glimpses, these little moments. And if you listen for those, so that's kind of like the best thing you could probably do. How you turn that into a process and shit, I don't know. Our product guys seem to be doing a phenomenal job with that. I think they kind of like, as Melody was saying, they jiggle the resources in such a way that it gives time for people to kind of be people. And then we become epic developers. Whereas if you kind of try and do a lot of that stuff without connecting with the very people that you work with, both up and down the so-called chain, it's going to be a technical exercise and it's just not going to work. I think that point that you made about learning the things that are important to you is like so high up in the ranking of like how to feel fulfilled like one of the things that I've learned to do and I used to be super bad at this is having like a reflective 20 minutes at the end of every day where I sit and think about like how my day went how it's sitting with me and like was I annoyed about particular things was I particularly proud of particular things like what do I want to repeat from the day and what do I want to never do again and I think learning the things that align with your beliefs, the things that align with your ethics that don't, where you sit on any spectrum of these things, and then also learning to recognize your own mental state when you're doing the things that make you happy and when you're doing the things that make you unhappy, so that you can then, if you're in that state of you know, being stressed and you're in this 
sort of whirlwind of emotions and you know, you're finding it difficult to get work done, you can sort of recognize it and go like, oh, I'm doing a thing that makes me unhappy. Maybe I'll just go for a walk around the block for a second and just clear my head. And I think learning those sort of self-soothing techniques and what gets you back into a clear mindset after you've been in that place where you're doing something that doesn't align is also really important. And then talking about it with other people. You know, once I started to learn about how to deal with sort of mental health and how to deal with my own anxieties and my imposter syndrome and all the rest of it, the more I spoke to other people about it, the more I was like, oh my God, everyone in tech is feeling this. Why don't any of us talk about it? And I think that that is something that is super important for us as, you know, if we're mentoring people to make sure that the people that we're talking to are also thinking about whether or not you know they're feeling imposter syndrome or feeling anxiety if we're managing people make sure that the people we're managing are talking about that and if we are mentees and we have a mentor asking them whether or not they've ever felt unhappy or felt anxious and you know find out what they think about it and just start to realize that you're not alone in those feelings it happens like throughout tech I'll either be moaning or gloating to my friends depending upon whether work is the worst thing ever or the best thing since sliced bread. I'm never wanting constructive feedback from them. I just want them to agree with me 100% because they are my generic friend. I think, and I think there is a big difference. And all my friends are very generic. Um, I, think that, I think there's a really different set of language that you need when you honestly want to do something about it. And what I want us to get better at is thinking about how we can have these conversations where we can action them. And it's about degrees rather than like a binary, this job is awful, this job is perfect. Even if you don't have the words, someone around you might. Yeah. So talk to your friends, talk to your peers, and then get them to help you. Yeah. I talk to my colleagues about things that I don't understand of how to phrase, and then they talk to my boss for me because I can't find the words. Yeah. T, time. Is in time for questions. <laughs> what is the uh, cost of a fulfilled development company and is it sustainable? Question from the audience there. What's the cost of a fulfilled developer? Can I answer it by the opposite? Which is what's yeah. the cost of an unfulfilled developer? Yeah. Right? It's somebody who's going to maybe not have the right meetings with his peers or her peers, or however they wish to be identified, because they will feel that they need to prove that they're a great developer or whatever the thing may be. So it starts to go into the code. It starts to go into disagreements and arguments about how you use semicolons or spaces or whatever the crap people want to fight about, right? And it becomes a power play based off of complete crap. And yeah, you might produce a hell load of software. Like people can you know, still type while they pay each other or whatever. But the cost on the company and the team and everything else is going to be that person will become middle management probably. Then they'll become slightly senior middle management and now you've just got a whole company which is screwed, right? So that's a massive cost on us as an industry. Who cares what the bosses think or who's got the paycheck? That's just a shit situation to be in. So let's not let that situation occur. And instead, try and make people fulfilled early on. You'll get people who get upset and they'll leave. And that's actually a massive cost saving. Because hopefully they can move on to find what they really want and be super productive in the right place. And you're in a position where you're beginning to create the right kind of culture which allows people to extremely flourish. And that's one of the things that we've seen. It is difficult, it's super difficult. We're lucky we've got clinical psychologists next door, as in, in the very next room, right? <laughs> to kind of keep us kind of 
in the right space, mind space. We've got a beautiful thing that we're working on. And that kind of brings us back. But if I could do anything, it would be trying to take what we've got and kind of say everyone be responsible for creating that in their own space. The benefit on the cost benefit or whatever thing the bub is massive. You become super productive. You create safe spaces where people can be who they are. When people can be who they are, they call it amazing crap. Amazing crap. <laughs> so it dominated quite a lot of like the earlier parts of the discussion, which was how big part of being a food developer is being able to be yourself, bring your whole self to work, etc., etc. And for a lot of people, their self is a very uh, shy, perhaps conflict averse, and you get lots of little things like maybe bicker time, and actually you'd rather just not talk about, you'd rather just like give way on that issue and. How do you sort of create a culture, an environment where you have shy people and you have confident people and everyone feels comfortable, but yeah. like some people just would rather not have the hassle or whatever of actually addressing a difficult issue that is maybe affecting them in some way. And so it's not big enough to actually make a deal of how do you sort of resolve that? How do we make shy people flourish and ensure that they can bring up problems that they've kind of got in their workplaces? I think it's a, if you are a manager of a shy person, I think that's a large onus on you as a manager and I guess as the wider team as well to make sure that there are channels for them to get their views across. So maybe if they don't want to speak up in a meeting, make sure that there's also a Slack channel. Something that I've seen happen a lot in standards committees, so web standards, everybody who's in the meeting is also in the Slack. And if you want to make a point, you don't have to make it out loud, you can make it in the Slack channel and someone will be keeping an eye on the Slack channel and making sure that the points that are made in the Slack channel are also made out loud to the wider audience. I also think that it's a really important part of being a manager is understanding your employees and also understanding their emotional and their mental state. So if you have an employee who maybe hasn't spoken up much in the meeting but looks a little agitated, taking them aside and saying, hey, let's get a coffee and let's chat about this in a much more relaxed, you know, somewhere safe where they're not with the team so they don't need to feel like they're being judged and they maybe don't need to feel like it's even part of work. It's just a separate catch-up on, like, how are you doing overall? I think we do have a couple of very, very quiet devs and I think that, at least in one of their cases, they don't want to be involved they do just want to let things wash over and the other one definitely does but doesn't know how to for me it's about understanding the difference between someone who wants to be involved and doesn't know how to find their voice and people who don't want to actually engage and are just happy to go along with what's happening and it, it's like you said it's about sort of really understanding who you're working with and then if they do want to get their voice heard, then giving them the space, making sure that there is room for them to do it. But when they don't want to engage and they do just want to work as part of the team, then just making sure that they're not called out on it because they're happy doing that. They'll be more productive as long as you understand that that's how they work and you're not letting them get trampled on by the louder voices. It seems to work fairly well. One of the louder voices in the room. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the Slack thing's quite a good idea as well. If you do have someone who's, especially juniors, uh, and I hate using senior junior title because people are just people, but... We got away with it for the whole session. We I know, but I, I, I wanted to bring it up to say that I didn't want to bring it up. Uh. <laughs> By now you should have realised I always speak in opposites. 
But yeah, uh, another thing that works with the Slack thing is that if you know yourself or you know there's somebody who is like that, you can offer to not be their voice, but use the Slack thing so they can just Slack you the questions that they got in the meeting and, and you present the ideas because all you're really doing is presenting ideas. If you know you've got someone who's quiet in your team, decisions should not be made in one meeting because that person may not be ready to make that decision in that room. So agree to have the discussion and then agree when a decision will be made. And that gives that person their own time to put their thoughts together, maybe put it in an email, whatever they need to do, and at least get their contribution to the thing heard. And as Melody was saying, you just got to listen out for those type of people, listen to them. Not every communication has to be verbal, and not the loudest, the loudest person should never be the decision maker. One last question. Could each of the panel be able to give an example of when they have felt unfulfilled at work, if they feel comfortable doing that, and why they felt unfulfilled, and what they or somebody else did to help them feel fulfilled from that situation? That's three questions. (laughs) (laughs) Can each of the panel think of an example where they've gone from unfulfilled to fulfilled, thanks to support of your colleagues around you? I can think of one answer that perhaps has a sad ending, which, in fact, I spoke about this earlier, the reason why I was unfulfilled in the role was I wasn't getting that feedback and I was letting myself get into a state where I was constantly anxious that I wasn't doing enough work, I wasn't doing good enough work, and I started getting into this depression spiral. And just talking to friends, talking to colleagues, talking to the tech industry as a whole about it, I realized that I needed to change jobs, and I did. (laughs) And I moved into a much more fulfilling job. I think that that is an option, realizing that the place that you're in isn't working for you is something that's important and that you need to double check with yourself occasionally. I guess when I realized I wasn't feeling fulfilled in product roles for unsuspiring companies and making that decision that I needed to become a developer and get those skills myself so that I can be building the really ambitious things. I guess I had the support of the developers in the role I was still in to look at what I'm sure was awful, awful code that I was writing at the beginning and using those people to help support and encourage me to grow my learning and grow the skills that I wanted to learn and skills that I needed to learn even though they liked me and it would mean me not working with them anymore. It's another pessimistic answer. I tried to frame it more positively. <laughs> I've got one, but it's pretty bad. Oh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I, I, I wondered, I don't know you, Rob, um, but I wondered, did you ask that question because maybe all of us will say no? Because I looked through the times in, in my life I felt unfulfilled, and every single time it has been me who has made the change and not, not really my colleagues doing it and most of the time uh, it's been through a change in role the usual way that I think unfulfillment it's like the sort of like ejector seat it's like I'm so unfulfilled now that I'm willing to just catapult myself out into the world and see if anything better comes along which is actually a fairly big deal I think and the other time was a time when and this is something that I don't know how peculiar to me it is but it's something that I at least historically have needed a lot, is for me to feel like people around me value my contribution. If I don't feel that, or if if I even feel like my colleagues are neutral, I really feel quite bad and I can't really deal with it very well. And so the way that I solved that is basically to be like, 
maybe I can just not care about that for a while and maybe it'll change. And I think gradually, it was a pretty horrible like couple of months, but gradually what changed was I started to do work that people valued a bit more obviously and work with a, a few different people. And I suppose in a way that's my colleagues helping me feel more fulfilled. But in every case it felt like I was driving the process and I wonder if most of the time if we feel genuinely unfulfilled and it's the sort of thing we'd remember, it's because we've already tried all the obvious avenues of working with our colleagues and it seems like we're almost trapped. Something has to change. I was feeling really unfulfilled not that long ago because I felt like I wasn't able to make a difference. I was being put in roles that I wasn't fully supported in. I didn't have any route to get the support or the help that I needed and I was really struggling because I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to do what I knew that the company and my team needed me to do and for me that is one of the worst feelings and it, it, it really kind of meant that I didn't want to do anything because it was too big and too scary. I spoke to my boss in a not particularly helpful way, effectively throwing my toys out of the pram and saying I didn't want to do any of the things anymore because it was all too much and too difficult. And he sat down with me and basically said, of all of the things that are on your plate, list them all out. Tell me what bits are the bits you don't want to do. Tell me why they're the bits that you feel that they're too much. Tell me, sort of work through, are there things I can take off your plate? How can we make this work. I don't want you to give up on any of these things. I don't want you to walk away. I don't want you to say you can't do it because I know that you are going to be good at these things and I know that it's just your anxiety and your fear that you're not good enough saying that you can't. So how can we cut this a bit smaller to make it so you can do it? And literally stepping through it made me realize that actually the things that were scaring me were it wasn't that I couldn't do it, it was that I was scared that I wasn't going to do it well enough and that that would make me feel worse and I'd rather not do it at all. But knowing that actually he had the faith in me and that he was there to support me and that I could pass things on to someone else if I needed to was enough for me to then go, actually, maybe I can do this and sort of step up and take on those extra bits of responsibility and do those things. And the company has now put in place a transition to management course because I have been stamping my feet for long enough about not getting the support to do this. So that's why I said talk to management, talk to your peers, talk to whoever, because someone somewhere will be listening and they may actually make enough of a difference that you can take the step that was absolutely terrifying for you um, and end up sat on a panel of a talk about being fulfilled at work. <laughs> Who even are these people? <laughs> <laughs> thank you Kay, thank you Melody, thank you Itty, thank you Joe, thank you all. So thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. And thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.